Well, we're going to be using the month of November as an opportunity to do a eye exam for four different weeks. And uh, I've discovered that uh, in some ways this is going to be an eye exam on a couple of different levels, uh, trying to help you be able to see better spiritually, but also to help you see better physically as well. I had a couple of people come to me and comment about the display behind me, and they said, you know, Pastor Steph, I'm having a hard time reading the second line down. And whoops, and, and I would just encourage you, if you're having a hard time reading the second line down, you might want to go see your eye doctor this week as well. And so maybe I can help you out both physically with your eyesight if you're having some troubles with the chart behind you. But more importantly, what we want to be looking at for the next month is our spiritual eyesight as well. Have you ever had the privilege of talking with someone who gave you their undivided attention? Uh, They looked at you, uh, they made eye contact with you, and while you were in conversation with them, they made you feel like the most important person in their world during that time. I had some uh, people that I met in my church back in Edmonton who had the wonderful opportunity a number of years back to meet Mother Teresa in Calcutta. Uh, Many of you know Mother Teresa, who worked in India, worked with the lepers there, Uh, an amazing woman devoted to Jesus Christ. And they said to me that when they were there and when they met Mother Teresa, uh, they said that Mother Teresa sat down with them and even in the midst of all the hustle and bustle of everything that was going on, there were so many active things that were happening in Mother Teresa's life that Mother Teresa sat with them and made them feel like they were her top priority at the time. It was one of... Mother Teresa's gifts. Uh, Many of her patients and lepers, too, said the same thing. There could be hundreds of patients, but as she went sometimes from bed to bed, at that moment, at that time, when she was at that bed with that individual, that person was all that mattered to Mother Teresa. Jesus was like this, too. Jesus looked at individuals, not just crowds. He didn't see just a sea of faces. He saw individual faces. One individual who we're going to be spending time with for the next four weeks is a blind man. The Bible in John does not tell us his name, but he becomes part of Jesus' undivided attention. In fact, the story in chapter 9 of John begins with these words. As Jesus went along, he saw. Interesting, also in contrast to the fact that this man was blind and could not see, but Jesus went along and he saw, he noticed. Do you ever watch people? That's something that I find quite fascinating to do sometimes. Um, Notice the way they carry themselves, uh, notice their facial expressions, notice their moods, uh, try to notice their needs. Uh, But at other times, we can become completely self-absorbed that we don't notice anyone around us. 
But Jesus was tuned into others. Jesus' focus was other people. Jesus didn't see just what was in front of his eyes, but even saw deeper. Although, in actuality, seeing what's right before your eyes when you become self-absorbed is actually a skill in and of itself. I know, personal confession, that when I become very introspective and very self-inward-looking, I can walk a block, two, three blocks, and not only not notice anybody else around me, but I can get to the end of that journey and not even remember anything along the way. My whole world just becomes inside of my head. But Jesus was able to see beyond himself. He saw people, individuals. Jesus had the discernment to see need where there was need. And obviously, it was Jesus who saw. The blind man couldn't see. He was blind. As Jesus went along, Jesus saw. And it was Jesus who found the blind man. It was Jesus who gave him the opportunity to be healed. And in so many ways, this parallels our own lives as well. It's not we who find Jesus. It's not we who have our eyes open and know where Jesus is, but Jesus comes and reaches to us. Jesus finds us in our deepest place of need. Jesus comes and sees us and calls us. In fact, that's even why all of you are here this morning. None of you are here this morning by pure fluke or accident but it's that Jesus saw you. And even by the power of the Holy Spirit, it is Jesus who has drawn you here this morning to speak to you, to say a word to you. Jesus saw. In Romans, or in John chapter 9, we read this after Jesus saw. As Jesus went along, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, or teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born like this, born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, Jesus spit on the ground, made some mud with his saliva, and pretty gross it seems here, put it in the man's eyes, rubbed it in there and said, go, Now wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and, and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, is this the same man 
who used to sit and beg? Some claim that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. Notice here our perception. So many people say, if I just saw a miracle, I would believe. We even interpret our miracles, don't we? Some saw the man and others were like, no, can't be the same guy. There's got to be a logical explanation for this. It's his twin brother that we didn't know about. But he insisted, no, I am the man. Well, how then were your eyes opened, they demanded. He replied, the man they called Jesus, he made some mud and he put it on my eyes and then he made me go to Salome and wash. And so I went and I washed and when I did, I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. It's that part of the story that we're going to look at this morning. Now, as always, the context of the biblical stories are important. The Gospel of John doesn't just randomly collect a bunch of stories and then stand on the top of a stairwell and and just throw them down in whatever order they sort of fell down the stairs, he then organizes his gospel. John very deliberately puts his stories together in a way that link with the running themes and what has come before and after. You see, the chapter right before this one, in chapter 8, Jesus got into trouble for being in the temple the Jewish holy place, and making some audacious claims. And one of those claims that he made while he was in the temple is that he was the light of the world. The religious establishment challenged Jesus on this claim, and they challenged him based on Old Testament law and based on the fact that in the Old Testament, in order to make a claim, you had to have a witness. On what basis can you make this claim to be the light of the world? Who is there to verify your claim? Can't just be from you alone. Who do you have to back you up? Not only was Jesus' claim to be light of the world ludicrous, but, but Jesus didn't seem to have anyone else who could corroborate that. But when challenged, Jesus said he did. He said he had his father. He said, my father is is a witness to this. And when the religious establishment asked Jesus who his father was, do you mean Joseph? Who are you talking about? Who's your father? Uh, Jesus then came and made this unique claim and said, no, my father, God. That Jesus has some kind of a unique relationship with the heavenly father. To the point that his heavenly father and him are one. At this point, some of the Jews accused Jesus of being crazy. Demon-possessed. You think you have some kind of special link with God? Who do you think you are? And then Jesus went even further and said, Not only is God my father, but you know your Bible stories. You remember that time in the Exodus when Moses came and there was a burning bush and he met God in the burning bush and he asked God, what is your name? And God said, I am Yahweh. Well, you remember that whole account? Well, that I am Yahweh, that God that Moses met in the burning bush, well, 
That's me. You can imagine what the religious leaders thought when they heard that, and what we imagine is exactly what they did, because the next thing that we read is as soon as Jesus claimed to be the I am, it says they picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy. You, a man, are claiming to be God Almighty, the I am of the Exodus. This Jesus in the temple, claiming to be the light of the world. Now, in the very chapter that follows, he leaves the temple. He slips away. They try to stone him, but he slips away. And in the very next chapter, it says, Now Jesus went along, and he saw a blind man. And what does he say to the blind man? What does he say when the disciples ask him about the blind man's condition? Jesus once again makes a self-affirmation and says, I am the light of the world. He said it in the temple. Now he's left the temple. And the very next thing he does outside of the temple is say, I am the light of the world. See, the stories are all hooked together very well to make the same point. That is that Jesus is the light of the world. He just won't let it go. Jesus is like a dog with a bone, very tenacious about trying to make his point. In some ways, you can get frustrated. Why doesn't Jesus just let it go? Why keep poking the bear? I mean, yeah, you see a guy in need, wonderful. Why don't you just heal the guy? Why stir the pot again? Why bring up the very thing that you just got booted out of the temple for? Why go there again? It's like Jesus is taking dry sticks and throwing them onto the fire and fanning the flames just to make the fire get even bigger. Jesus seems to be purposely going out of his way to poke and to prod and to tick all of these guys off. You just wonder if Jesus lived today and was amidst our church culture. How uncomfortable would Jesus make us? What would be the things that he kept just poking and prodding and making us try to think differently about? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. But when Jesus sees a blind man, The disciples look at the same person, and they see a theological debate. See, we can look at the same thing, but we can see very differently. Not everybody interprets what they see the same way. And in many ways, our interpretation tells us a lot about what's going inside our lives. And so when Jesus sees the man, the disciples say, teacher, okay, who sinned? This blind man that's in front of us, or or was it his parents? You see, the logic for many of the people in Jesus' day, particularly among the Jews, went something like this. Suffering comes from sin. This man is in an obvious state of suffering, and so therefore, what caused it? 
It's very logical. Suffering comes from sin. The man's suffering, so there must be sin that has caused this. And so where is the cause? Is it him or is it his parents? See, in Jesus' day, some Jewish schools of thought believed that a child could sin even in the womb. Uh, Maybe this blinds This man's blindness is linked to some kind of sin that he did while he was still in his mummy's tummy. I mean, maybe one time he just kicked his mom a good one. Just like, not just like the uncomfortable, like just really kicked his mom. And so God said, fine, you're going to be born blind. Maybe that's what it was. Another idea, this one comes more from Greek philosophy that was popular in Jesus' day as well, said that everyone had a soul that pre-existed their body. And that sometimes this pre-body soul could sin. And therefore, if your pre-body soul sinned, then when that soul took on a body, it would have to suffer the consequences of its sin now in the body. So maybe this person was blind because of something his soul did before it entered his body. And he's suffering the consequences. Other people, however, would, would place the blame on the parents. It wasn't so much what this guy did, but it was something his parents did. Maybe his parents slept together before they were married. And so God gave them a blind son. Now, maybe they didn't tithe enough to their local synagogue. Or uh, maybe their faith wavered at a really tough time in their life. And so God decided to punish them with a blind son until they get their act together. You can see how terrible uh, these ideas can be in regards to both the pain of human suffering... And you can also see how terrible these ideas can be to the nature of who God is. Bad ideas about God and about suffering have always been around in every generation. We have them today as well. Some churches teach that if you are not experiencing physical healing in your life, then it is due to some kind of sin or lack of faith in either you or the people praying for you. Other religions attribute it to previous lives. I had a conversation about a month ago with a Hindu guy I met at Tim Hortons. And he started explaining to me about how he had just lost his job. And then about six weeks prior to that, his wife walked out on him. And as he was telling me this story, he said to me, you know what, I am probably experiencing all of this now because of something I did in a previous life. Because of his... Ideas around reincarnation. A number of people, including Christians, can torture themselves or, on the other hand, refuse to take responsibility because of the hang-ups they have, superstitions, bad theology, pseudoscience, or some of the stupid things that they've read on the internet. I I really feel uh, sorry for medical doctors these days, how probably every third patient comes in with a bunch of papers from the internet. I think I've diagnosed myself, and this, and oh, um, Ed Dublin can probably uh, relate. We come up with all kinds of 
bad ideas about ourselves, about God, about suffering, about one another. And they really can cause us to be in bondage. But Jesus came to shine a light in the darkness. He came to shine a light into the darkness that traps so many people. Unlike everyone else who sat around and discussed this man's fate as some kind of theological circus ride that they could enjoy, Jesus looked upon the man with compassion. The light of Jesus helps us see people as people and not as ideas. In a wonderful little book that just came out, Alan Jacobs' book, How to Think, he writes about the deteriorating civility between people who spoke against one another during the Reformation 500 years ago. And what he does in the book is he attributes a lot of it to the printing press. With the rise of the printing press, no longer did you have to speak to someone that you disagreed with face-to-face. You could now just send an open letter to him and let everybody else read it and not even have a personal relationship with this. And what we see very early on with the advent of the printing press and with some of the debates that came out during the Reformation is a real deterioration in the way that people spoke about and to each other. They could now throw jibes at each other impersonally. See, people became ideas rather than persons. I remember uh, some occasions where I have vehemently disagreed with somebody at a distance and sometimes, unfortunately, said some not-so-nice things about this individual and then had the opportunity. Sometimes when I was at Taylor at the seminary in Edmonton, I had an opportunity to meet some different people that were well-known, big-name type people, and I would have an opportunity to go out for lunch with them because I was an adjunct faculty. And all of a sudden, I was like, man, this person's actually really nice, really well-thought through, actually has a lot of good points Uh, beyond sort of the straw man that I created out of his ideas. All of a sudden, when I was face-to-face, even if I didn't necessarily agree with everything, he became a human being and a brother in the Lord. Not just the son of the devil, who I thought he was before I met him. You see, our opponents can often be simplified. Our opponents can often be demonized in ways that are much harder to simplify and demonize when we actually have a relationship with them. This is one of the unfortunate things that deteriorated during the Reformation with the printing press, and I can only tell you that with the advent of the Internet, it's only gotten worse. I mean, if you ever want to subject yourself to torture... Just look at anything, a a news column or anything, where underneath it, it allows people to give their comments. I mean, the way people speak and treat one another who have differences of opinion is absolutely atrocious. And it's even worse when Christians do it, because we should be people of better character than that. Jesus reminded us that people are people first, even if they are sinners, even if they are are heretics, even if they do have disabilities. 
People are not just case studies. And people should be treated and spoken to as people. And if you can't say something to someone's face, don't post it. Don't say it about them to someone else. In this sermon on the story of the blind man, the golden-mouthed preacher of the 4th century, John Chrysostom, said Jesus was full of love for this man. Despite whatever his history was, Jesus was full of love for this man. One of the things that, I don't know if it's just where I'm at in my life at this point, but in this walkthrough of the Gospel of John, one of the things that is standing out for me so much about Jesus is his compassion. It's almost making me fairly emotional at times in my office when I'm reading about Jesus and the blind man, Jesus and the woman caught in adultery, and Jesus and the, like, just his compassion. He touches them. He sees them. He singles them out from the whole crowd. He protects them. And Jesus is a reflection of the character of God. Jesus had love for this man. Another point Chrysostom makes in his sermon is that Jesus also went out of his way to be with this man because he desired to stop the mouths of the foolish. It's not ever enjoyable work, but always the work that we have as spiritual leaders. One of my jobs as a pastor is to stop the mouths of the foolish. A lot of junk gets thrown around. A lot of junk emails get thrown around. I often, uh, I get less and less people emailing me stuff, which I'm glad because I often, when somebody emails me something that sign, I don't just delete it. I send back and say, have you verified this? Have you really looked into this? Is this really true? Because we as Christians are truth tellers. So don't be sloppy and spread what possibly could be lies. Even if it is advantageous to our cause. If it's not true, don't spread it. Our job as leaders is to stop the mouths of foolish ideas. Because they always hurt God's people and hurt the community. A theology of suffering isn't developed by sitting around in a Bible study debating sin and suffering. A theology of suffering is developed when we get our hands dirty. As one needy person aptly put it for the church, I was hungry, and you formed a humanities group to discuss my hunger. I was imprisoned, and you crept off quietly to your chapel, and you prayed for me. I was naked, and in your mind, you debated the morality of my appearance. I was sick, and you knelt and thanked God for your health. I was homeless, and you preached to me of the spiritual shelter and the love of God. I was lonely, and you left me alone to go pray for me. You seem so holy, so close to God, but I'm still hungry and lonely and cold. A theology of suffering is developed when we care for those suffering. Jesus' disciples debating this man, is it his sin, is it his parents' sin, in many ways became foolish theologians, uh, reminiscent of Job's 
quote-unquote friends in the Old Testament, his uncomforting comforters who sat around and debated why Job was sick. Did he sin? Was it his parents who sinned? Was it kids did something? Jesus came to be the light of the world to stop these foolish ideas. And so Jesus says, it was not this man nor his parents who sinned. And here's where Jesus goes totally radical because then Jesus flips the table completely. And Jesus then says, no, this happened, this guy's blindness happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Not only does Jesus now say, it's not because of his sin, it's not because of his parents' sin, but Jesus goes one further and says, in fact, his suffering is for the glory of God. Now, that was a new thought. A new thought even for many of us today. How can suffering actually be for God's glory? Instead of the man's blindness being a great evil, Jesus comes along and turns it around into a great good. What people saw as darkness was going to be used by Jesus to shine a light for this man, for all of his disciples, And as it was recorded for all of us today, Jesus was going to give us a completely new perspective on suffering with the light that he was going to shine. A perspective that the Apostle Paul modeled for us later as he talks about and shows in his own life how affliction and persecution, and sorrow, and pain, and disappointment, and loss can all be opportunities for the glory of God. This is ultimately seen in the cross. The cross, the ultimate symbol in culture of defeat, becomes, through the light of Jesus, the symbol of victory. He flips it completely. I... Uh, seen this in my own life. For the uh, past 10 years, I've been on antidepressant medication for both anxiety and depression issues. And on four different occasions, I've tried to go off my medication because every time we start feeling good, we think, eh, why do I need this? And I always kind of go off it. Um, last time I went off it, I had such a bad crash that I had to call Miriam Bromley to take me to the hospital because Nancy was working and I couldn't even drive. And uh, finally, my doctor um, kind of gave me a good talking through about why do you keep doing this to yourself? And I've had to come to the realization that I just simply need this medication. It, it helps me. It significantly, for me, uh, helps. Now, I could feel guilty about this, about the lack of my fortitude, the, the, the weakness of my faith. Um, why do I have a serotonin deficiency? Is it my fault? Is it my parents' fault? Um, I, I could let my more artistic and melancholy side uh, cause me to just simply give up. Why even bother? I could speculate about the reasons behind all of this. I could blame these people, blame myself. But I've increasingly come to the point, hopefully it's maturity, increasingly come to the point where I've realized none of this matters. What matters 
is that I've been redeemed by Jesus Christ because of what he did for me on the cross. And I belong to him. And that's all that matters. By the grace of God, I am what I am. So just accept it, Steph. Just accept it, everybody else. Now, this does not mean I'm against counseling. I've gone for counseling myself. But sometimes we can overdo it. And sometimes we need to stop all the self-analytical work of wallowing about ourselves and our family of origins. And we need to just start living despite the fact that, guess what? I'm still kind of screwed up. And God's okay with that. So, I take my pills. I try to live, take some risks, try to be more concerned about others than myself, and be thankful and be grateful, and stop worrying about all the details. This is what Martin Luther meant when he made that bold and often misunderstood statement when he said, be a sinner and sin boldly, but believe and rejoice in Christ even more boldly. I always find Luther so helpful and freeing. Stop analyzing everything. Oh, is this right? Is this wrong? Is this right? And just start living. Take some risks. Once in a while, you're probably going to mess up, but who cares because God's bigger than even your mess-ups. And that's what matters. Believe and rejoice in Jesus Christ even more boldly and stop living in the small little well that you've trapped yourself in. This is what Jesus is saying when he's saying, I'm the light of the world. I am here to help you see so much bigger than the way you've limited yourself. And this leads us to Chrysostom's third point in this sermon where he says that Jesus in this man and his healing of the man was concerned for our salvation. Jesus was going to let and heal this man's vision so that through him, he was going to heal the vision of the disciples. He was going to heal our vision as well. That by loving people as people, by hushing the mouths of the know-it-alls who really don't know it all, Jesus showed us how healing and salvation are found in the light of Jesus Christ. See, the blind man's weakness had nothing to do with his own sin. Instead, it was an opportunity for God to show his love. It was an opportunity for God to show him and to show the world something that's even greater and more important than eyesight. It was an opportunity for this man to trust God. It was an opportunity for Jesus' followers to trust God and embrace a better theology of suffering in the light of the one who is the light of the world. As Mother Teresa again said, I know I am touching the living body of Christ in the broken bodies of the hungry and suffering. How did Mother Teresa touch a leper and see in the brokenness of the leper Jesus himself? She had her eyes opened. Her blindness was healed. She was able to see properly because she saw because Christ's light gave her a new perspective on life. 
the suffering in this world from Mother Teresa's eyes was not something to be ignored, was something to involve herself in and to help bring healing to, but also was, ironically, exactly where she found Jesus. Not by avoiding suffering. This is what's so different about Christianity and Buddhism. In Buddhism, it's all about denial of suffering. It's all about somehow transcending your, your, your pain, transcending your feelings, almost putting yourself into a trance where you can even walk on hot coals and not feel it. Because in that whole philosophy, it is to ev- avoid, to not experience suffering. Where in Christianity, it's by embracing the suffering, experiencing it where we actually touch God. Jesus said, whatever you do to the least of these, you did to me. When you connect with suffering, you connect with me. The disciples tried to learn about sin and suffering by trying to pry into this man's past. Jesus instead saw a man, touched him. Jesus was full of love for the man. Jesus decided, because he was full of love, to stop the mouths of the foolish that spread unlove. And Jesus was concerned for our salvation. As we read in the book of James, dear brothers and sisters, what's the use of saying you have faith if you don't prove it by your actions? That kind of faith can't save anyone. Suppose you see a brother or a sister who is in need, needs food or clothing, or someone that's blind, and you say to them, well, goodbye, God bless you, stay warm, eat well. But you don't do anything to give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, it isn't enough to just have faith. Faith that doesn't show itself by good deeds is no faith at all. It is dead and useless. Jesus is saying to his disciples, guys, your theology, not only is it messed up, but your theology, if it doesn't actually participate in life, in, in, the, in, in the assisting of those that are suffering, relieving them from their pain, it's useless. Faith, theology, belief that doesn't show itself in love, it's nothing. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. God's glory shines in Jesus as the light of the world. And this man's very blindness becomes the lamp from which Jesus' light shines. And that's always how God works. God brings life out of death. God brings resurrection out of crucifixion. God brings something out of nothing. God makes the barren conceive. God takes what is broken and fixes it. This is the way God works. God works well with nothing 
and with what appears to be hopeless. It's the very material that God does miracles with. What the disciples and many others thought was a wasted life, Jesus saw as a story of salvation. Christ is the light of the world, and his light gives us a different story than the story that darkness tries to narrate to us. And when it comes to suffering, Jesus' light gets us to stop analyzing, stop talking, stop stereotyping, stop fearing, stop ignoring, stop wallowing, and stop arguing about. Instead, Jesus' light gets us moving and acting, reaching, caring, loving, sharing, empathizing, helping, living. Jesus' light is the glory of God that shines. Shortly after Mother Teresa passed away, her private journals were published. And what astonished many people was that her journals were full of her struggles and doubts and agonizing prayers to God. And yet those struggles never seemed to disable her from loving and caring for the lepers in Jesus' name. On one occasion, uh, a lady came to her and asked her what it was that gave Mother Teresa such certainty in her life. And she said to Mother Teresa, can you just pray that I could have that kind of certainty as well? And Mother Teresa said, I've never had certainty. I've never had clarity in my life. What I have always had is trust. And so I pray that you will trust God. So often our desire is to have everything laid out for us. God, tell me where I should go to school, what house I should buy, who I should marry, who this, and lay out my whole life for, for me. Give me clarity, give me this. And we are asking the wrong thing. And many times we are trying to have faith and put our faith in certainty. But what real faith looks like and what real faith is, is it's trust. It's saying many times I don't know tomorrow beyond today. I don't know what the next steps of my life, my marriage, my calling, what's happening with my kids, relationships I'm in, work. My aging parents, I, 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 even some of the questions and, and, and struggles I have with how God seems to be allowing things to happen in the world. But what really matters is not figuring all that out. What really matters is recognizing that Jesus is the light of the world. And I trust him.
Faith is not a pain-free, doubt-free existence where all the mysteries of who, why, where, and when of sin are, suffer- are, are answered like the disciples want it. Was it this man? Was it his parents? Uh, what's the whole origins of evil and suffering? Faith is not necessarily having all those things answered. But faith is trust in God. That God will be with us in the pain. God will be with us in the blindness. And in God's timing, if he so chooses, God will be the one that makes the eyes to see again. God will not leave us or forsake us. He's with us in our struggles. He's with us in our doubts. He's with us in our suffering. And like Mother Teresa, we can bring those before God. And we don't have to let them paralyze us. Mother Teresa never said, just because I'm struggling, just because I've got doubts, I am not worthy to work with lepers. It's like what we learned last week when Staupitz was working with Martin Luther. And Martin Luther had all these struggles and doubts and he was wondering about God. Staupitz didn't say, well, you need to just go and hide in a corner somewhere and figure that all out. He said, no, you know what? Go be a preacher. You'll start working it all out as you preach. Instead of running from our calling, instead of running from the things that God may be wanting to do in our lives because we're still working it out, what we see with this blind man and what we see with the way Jesus worked with his disciples is live. Trust God. He is the light of the world. And it will be in the midst and in the journey of the pain and the suffering that we will learn about him more and more. So that we can go out and we can live forgiven lives in the midst and the mess and bring Christ's light to other people. Look at how this story even ends today. The guy doesn't know much at all. People come to him and say, how'd you get your eyesight back? What's going on here? Who are you? We're going to really get into this next week where he starts to get grilled by the religious leaders. And ultimately, he's like, I don't know. I just know that I can see. Sometimes we just need to recognize we don't have it all figured out, but we can see. And we walk in trust that God has given us sight. And though there's still so much more that I need to work out in my life, I am going to start living and proclaiming about the one who has healed my sight. And thus bring a deeper healing to others and myself in the journey. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you come to us in our blindness. You come to us in our sin. You come to us not when we fix everything. While we were still sinners, you died for us. You come to us, God, when we are sick, when we are lonely. And Lord, we pray that when you do come to us, like this blind man, we will respond to you. We will say, open my eyes. And we will allow you to begin to help us to see life differently.
to see our suffering from a new perspective, to see people from a new perspective, to see our church from a different perspective, our world from a different perspective, that we will begin to see with the eyes of Jesus, the one who went along and saw. May we see as Jesus saw. Amen.